Production. Recorded live. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, January 7th, 2017. Happy New Year. Um, welcome back to the call. And tonight we have Mr. Monty Montgomery again. Uh, Monty, hello there. Hi. So, what were we going to talk about tonight? Article 4. Um, I'm going to, um, I had intended to rehash on uh, Article 4 of the Bill of Rights and Article 6 on the oath because um, all of the difficulties that we're encountering today um, are, if it's handled right, are going to go back to those two things. Okay. Insofar as a remedy. Who all we got on tonight? Uh, we got Tanya. Hi, Tanya. Hi, Monty. Um, okay. Are are you ready? Uh, we're always ready. All right. I'm going to go through this slowly so you can digest it as I go. Executable, that's an operative word. Executable writs of process, such as summons, subpoena, and warrant, are exclusive to the judicial power. To be valid, these writs of process must bear the signature of a judicial officer and the seal of the issuing court. Now, I'm going to interject a thing here, like if um, if the IRS seizes a bank account with a Form 688Y uh, notice of levy and all that, um, unless there is a warrant signed by a judicial officer and bearing the seal of the issuing court, that is an unlawful process, and it is... Uh, in violation of Article 4. Declaratory and restrictive Article 4 of the Bill of Rights unambiguously mandates that the right of the people to be secure in their person and their property (coughs) excuse me, against unreasonable searches and seizures. Now, most people know what a search warrant is, but they don't really stop to think about a seizure warrant being ind- independent of that. <coughs> now, the way the Bill of Rights reads, that the right of people to be secure in the person and their property, and that includes rights, against unreasonable searches and seizures, comma, shall not be violated, comma, and no warrant shall issue, comma. And it goes on from there. Clearly, any seizure made in the absence of a warrant, I'm not talking about search here, I'm talking about seizure. Any seizure made in the absence of a warrant issued under judicial authority, as I stated before, (laughs) is unreasonable. 
within the meaning of and in violation of Article 4 as stated. It must never be forgotten that Article 4 of the Bill of Rights is a restriction on the exercise of government authority at any level. It is also a declaration, declaratory clause, meaning it is permanent and cannot be modified by any of the delegated powers, including judicial interpretation of its terms, which are unmistakable in intent. It cannot even be modified through the amendment clause of the Constitution because it's declared. None of the other, outside those first ten articles, none of the other so-called amendments are declaratory. They can be put in, taken out, whatever. The uh, Prohibition Amendment was a good example of that. Although Article 4 is expressed as a single sentence, it is divided into clauses by the use of commas, which grammatically signifies that all the clauses interrelate to each other as related and relevant components of a single subject. An example of this would be to say that the flag shall be red, comma, white, comma, and blue, comma, and shall not be bordered or bounded by a gold-colored fringe, comma, except for military purposes. <clears throat> Even when a search or a seizure warrant is issued under the signature and seal of the judicial power, Article 4 further mandates a claim or showing of probable cause supported by oath or affirmation as a condition of the issuance. That means in order for the court to issue a warrant, someone has to make a claim of actual loss, injury, or damage under the penalty of perjury. In other words, the claimant has to expressly accept personal liability for any false claims made. Still with me on this? Got it. Okay. Now, the flip side of that, I mean, there's two sides to everything. And if you put yourself in the position of a, say, a police officer, uh, um... If you, he's also under Article 6 oath to keep you and your neighbor and your family and everybody else secure in their rights, in their person and in their property. So he has a duty to more than just one person. Um, <clears throat> hey, for instance, on this, if you, if he comes along and he sees somebody, uh, with his brand new chainsaw he got for Christmas out there uh, checking it out by cutting down your power pole, he has probable cause because he, by direct first-hand observation, 
this guy is causing damage to you. In that case, where he gets his warrant, supported by oath or affirmation, is, first of all, he'll detain the party with the chainsaw, and he'll come up to your door and say, uh, is that your pole? It's presumed you're under oath or, or equivalent because I think in most states there is a law against lying to a police officer conducting an investigation. And that's what he's doing in that instance. To say, yeah, that's my pole. What's he doing cutting it down? Well, then the police officer has, he's satisfied the requirements of uh, supporting oath or affirmation. Uh, he has probable cause. Strictly speaking, what he should do at that point is radio in to his dispatcher, have them contact the local magistrate, have a warrant issued on the basis of the information that he's gathered, and then he's going to call for backup anyway. So have another officer bring out the warrant and serve it. Now, if he doesn't directly observe this, the same thing applies if you look out your picture window and you see this guy cutting down your pole and you take a picture of it and you call the um, local constabulary and say, I've got somebody cutting down my power pole. Okay? Same thing applies. They've got probable cause. They've got the affidavit and support. They even have forensic evidence to support it. And this, in that case, would include a seizure provision in the warrant to seize the evidence, which would be the chainsaw. Am I making sense with this? Got it. Okay. Now, <clears throat> there are many instances, such as traffic stops, where um, there's no probable cause, there's no actual injury loss or damage caused to any any claimant um, in which case the not only is Article four being violated of the Bill of Rights, uh if the officer in question is not actually under Article six or if he is under Article six oath, he's in breach of it. And in which case, um, it's a false arrest because if they're stopping your motion, if you're exercising your right to, to travel and he stops your motion, that is a seizure. It requires a warrant. Now, again, the flip side of that coin is um, if he directly observes you uh, driving down the road, uh, knocking over roadside mailboxes with your vehicle, he has probable cause. He has, uh, and all he has to do is get you, the mailbox owner, to go uh, tell him that, yeah, that is my mailbox, and it, <laughs> that's not how I left it the last time I saw it. <laughs> so he has all he needs, and the same thing applies with the example of the chainsaw. 
But as far as just pulling somebody over on the road, unless uh, unless the officer wants to take the position of also being a witness that and can prove that he observed conduct that constituted someone being a public menace or um, endangering the property or person of another individual, in which case he would have to get their their statement, um, which would be an affidavit in equivalent, uh, to support that warrantless arrest. Because the warrant Warrant has a generic meaning also. It just means authorized or approved. And we have that authority. In fact, if you wanted to do the arrest yourself, if you're the one whose property was uh, damaged or injured or or, uh, posed a threat of injury or loss or damage, um, you're authorized to make the arrest, but you have to turn them over to a magistrate or for probable cause hearing, or to a peace officer. And most of your states will have statutes to preserve that. You know that Idaho does. So that's kind of a nutshell version um, of how important the Article 6 of and Article 4 of the Bill of Rights is, because all the things that we see going on today, seizing bank accounts and traffic stops, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, It's important to understand that. So, like, let's say on a um, IRS seizes a bank account, um, they they generally do that with a uh, notice of levy. But that's just a notice of levy. It's not an instrument of process issued by a court. There's no warrant. So the um, one of the things you would have to do to remedy that is you'd have to go down to your local courthouse and check the records. They will have in their records, the recorder's office will have an index called warrants. Now, you're not going to find any warrants in there that have not yet been served. But all the served warrants are in there. And generally, they'll put in the affidavit and support with that um, into the record, either the, the court's record or into the county record. And if you do a diligent search and you cannot find a warrant to support that notice of levy, um, now you have grounds to bring action for a violation of Article, violation of article 4. Um, Possible impersonation of a public officer. Um, some, you know, it can go civil or criminal, um, and that's how you go about it. But you have to gather the evidence of authority to do what is being done. Now, sticking with this same example, in most instances, and I'll give a, a personal example. I have an account with a credit union. I signed a contract, and that's where, how they generally get around the restrictions of Article 4 of the Bill of Rights because contract law will supersede that. You have an absolute right to make or create law through contract. 
that law doesn't apply to anyone but the signatories on that contract, but it is law. And that's why you hear the expression, the law of the contract. Not the law of the land, it's the law of the contract, and you have that authority. Um, however, in my case, when I, and I've read these, they will have language in there that allows them to honor a notice of levy from the IRS, and with your signature on there, you authorized it through contract law. So the way to avoid that in the future, even if you have to open up a new bank account to do it, is when they hand you the contract to sign, I, that's why I always put in, it's a universal qualification on the signature. I don't put in uh, without prejudice. I don't, uh, all rights reserved, uh, UCC 1-207. All these different qualifiers, I don't put them in there because <clears throat> they open other doors for argument and so on and so forth. I just slam the door shut right from the very beginning. And <clears throat> under the UCC, which is what they operate under, if you're going to put a notice into something, you have to make it conspicuous. So what I do, when, uh, directly above my signature on that contract that I'm authorizing, that I'm creating, being a party to, with the credit union or the bank, that's where I put the non-assumpsit per item finance persona ficta in Latin. The fact that it's in Latin, and, and more often than not, I will bold it if I can. Um, but it's not necessary. Just the fact that it's Latin makes it conspicuous. It's also a restriction, and that restriction is that you accept no liability by or through any fictitious entity with a name that sounds the same as yours when spoken. So, the only way that the bank or the IRS or the government generally or any of these corporations, instrumentalities, can come at you is through a fiction. They can't come at you directly as a living man or woman because you have rights. Primarily, you have the Article 4 of the Bill of Rights, and they cannot overcome that. So <clears throat> when you put that restriction on your signature on this contract law you are creating with the bank or the credit union, you're saying that if you want to come against me, you have to come against me. You cannot come against me through a fiction, even if it has a name that sounds the same as mine when spoken. Because you'll notice that whenever they come at you, it's always in the all capital letter name. If you defend against that, if you answer anything, on behalf of that all capital letter name, you create the presumption that you have the authority to represent and make representations on behalf of that fiction, and they've got you. So, and I've actually seen IRS uh, filings in federal court where they have United States of America title case versus the all capital letter name individual. Now, the way you can overcome that is by <clears throat> changing the caption <clears throat> to read your title case name and identify yourself as an aggrieved intervener 
of necessity. Necessity excuses the law. You don't have to follow the rules. You don't have to follow the law if you're acting out of necessity. Then below that, you have versus United States of America, or whatever it happens to be in title case, versus, uh, and that, they would, that would be a nominal, that's an important word to use, you're identifying them as a nominal plaintiff, versus the all capital letter name, nominal defendant. And on the other side of the caption, you put uh, notice um, and you can word the notice a number of variety of ways, but it has to pertain to the fa- uh, pertain to the reason you are intervening and your rights and probably notice of prejudice to rights would be the best way to warrant to word that then in the body. Hmm. You put the court on notice um, of that fact that the, the filing of this action is prejudicial to, or could be construed as prejudicial to your secure rights secured to you under Article Four of the Bill of Rights, um, which is part of the supreme law of the land. Anything um, else, notwithstanding. And um, and then you make reference to your affidavit. Now here's here's where you bring in the uh, something that they can recognize that under the UCC, which all the courts operate under now, um, you reference or you don't reference the UCC, but you simply point out or be aware of the fact that even under the UCC, an unrebutted affidavit stands as truth. So in your response, in your intervention response, uh, you make reference to your affidavit. Then in your affidavit, in support of this brief, that's where you put the language, I have no memory of accepting any legal duty or obligation in relation to any fictitious entity styled as, and you put your name in all caps and quote it, or any orthographic variation thereof. And that's a kind of a another way of repeating the non-assumpted qualifier on your signature. Are you still with me? Yep. Okay. I'm assuming this is being recorded, so that's how. Yes, it is. <clears throat> anyway, I'm going to stop there for a while and open it up for questions. All right. I believe Tanya has a question. All right. Okay. Yeah, I, you know, I did. I did have one of Monty answered uh, the question, though. Uh, well, actually, it was going to be a statement, and that is this: um, I had a friend of mine 
who that's how I know how this happened regarding the bank account and the uh, the levy uh, order to the bank. And so I had found that information in the law that says they're required to have a uh, court order in order to do that. Yeah, they have to have a warrant. They have to have a warrant. So I told her that here's the code section that says that uh, in Title 26, straight out, that says they're required regarding banks. They have to do that. She gave that to the bank, and here's what the bank told her, exactly what you said. Here's a copy of of the contract that you signed when you opened the bank account that gave that. Uh, that waives that right. Right. And now, the only... I was shocked. Well, I mean, you made the law when you signed the contract. But we here's the thing. You know, interesting thing is the banks are complicit with this stuff because nobody, that stuff is buried and they're, get, they're throwing so many paper papers at you when you're signing, when you're opening the account. I know. And they're not giving you a whole lot of choice in it. But here's how you can No, they're not. Mm-hmm. If the matter goes into court, if it's contested mm-hmm. and it goes into court and they're going to bring that contract up as evidence. Okay. They're going to bring it in as evidence of the law of the contract. At that point, that's where you challenge the signature. If you did not qualify the signature, as I outlined, then what you can do is uh, this isn't entirely ethical. Maybe not even moral, okay? But you could well look at the look at who we're dealing with. Yeah, well, okay, you can justify it that way if you want. Uh, <laughs> um, but what you can do is you can the, the judge would it would reach a point if you challenge it, the judge would actually say, or the attorney might say, is that your signature on that contract or not? And unless it was witnessed by two or three witnesses or a notary, mm-hmm. your position would be, well, it resembles my signature, but I'd have to be a damn fool to sign something like this. I think this is a forgery. <laughs> I love I think, it. I think this is a forgery. Now, who are they going to bring as a witness to verify that signature? You're the only witness that can verify it. And if you're claiming it's a forgery, where does that leave them? Mm-hmm. Like I said, that's not entirely ethical or moral, but that is a way to handle that. I look at it as when when in Rome, uh, when you're dealing with the Romans, (laughs) 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 when you're dealing with the Romans, uh, by any means necessary. All right. Because they don't they don't play by the rules. They have rules and ignore them. Because well, we don't know the rules. That's why. Um that yeah, that's a pretty good summation. Mm-hmm. Because this. we don't know the rules. Remember this. The bank isn't the source of the problem. They don't write the contracts. Their bar maggot attorneys write those contracts. The problem mm-hmm. always goes back to the bar maggot. Okay. 
So, anyway, and you know with um, and you know with California, Monty, do you not know that there's some uh, a constitutional amendment that um, says that uh, it's Article Thirteen, Section Thirty Two. What schools? The only thing I can think of is that they buried that someplace in the vote because nobody, they'd have to be a fool to vote for that. They voted, they voted that, and this is the reason why the California Franchise Tax Board operates with uh, basically where they don't think that they have to um, be beholden to any laws at all. All right. They, now, they, they, um, they, they. There's something in the Constitution. They put in the Constitution where they okay, don't so have to. They don't have you, to. You can't. Go ahead. I'm sorry. They, well, I'm fairly familiar with California. California has amended its Constitution about as frequently as I change my socks. Oh, here it is, um, Monty. It says, "No legal or equitable pro- or equitable process shall issue in any proceeding." in any court against this state or any officer thereof to prevent or enjoin the collection of any tax. After payment of a tax claimed to be illegal, an action may be maintained to recover the tax paid with interest in such manner as may be provided by the legislature. All right. There's a couple of ways of dealing with that. Um, They can't get around Article 1, Section 10. And the okay. Supreme and the Supreme Court, the, the case that nailed that down was a California case. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Monty. I gotta get my get a pen. Hold on, because <laughs> you're you're throwing out some jewels right here that I <laughs> that I want to write down. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, Article One, Section Ten. They cannot compel you to tender anything but gold and silver coin. That is still right. the supreme law. Okay. Okay. Now, the Supreme Court case that nails that down was a California case in 1884, and it was Hager, H-A-G-A-R, versus Land Reclamation District 108. 108? Okay. Yeah. I don't okay. remember the, um, I don't remember the numbers or volume Eight. numbers or whatever, but... If it was in 1884? In that, okay. Yeah, if you, if you punch that in, it'll bring it up. And basically the statement you're after in that case is they said that acts of Congress making no... Don't try and write this down. Just look it up later. I'm going to probably paraphrase... Well, this is fairly almost verbatim. Acts of Congress making notes of the United States, i.e. Federal Reserve notes, a legal tender, do not apply... Those acts of Congress do not apply to involuntary contributions in the nature of taxes or assessments, that means fines, exacted under state law. Oh, love it. Okay? So the state cannot compel a tender other than gold and silver coin. They can voluntarily accept other forms of tender, but they can only compel gold and silver coin. So... They're still operating under that disability. They'll try and say, "Well, you know, the 
this act and that act of Congress. It doesn't matter. The Supreme Court said it, any act of Congress making notes of the United States at legal tender do not apply. That was in Hager. And that hasn't changed. So, hmm, uh, what they're trying to do is straighten out the mess they created in uh, Jilliard versus Greenman, which was about four months earlier in 1884. Anyway, um, the other way to approach this is um, California's probably, it's been a while since I've looked at their material, but it seems to me that there is a, there should be a requirement, the same as Oregon or a lot of other states, that when their constitution is, that amendment was made through what, referendum or initiative? Um, More than likely uh, it was. Uh, yeah, it was a proposition, initiative measure. Mm-hmm, sure was. Right, right. Okay, so it went to the voters. Mm-hmm. All right. I think that there's probably going to be a requirement in California law that whenever a an amendment to the consti- state constitution is put to the voters, that the entire verbiage of those changes. I'll give you an example. In Oregon, Article 7 of its constitution dealt with the uh, judicial power. The original had 27 um, articles, or 27 sections. Then along came an amendment a proposed amendment, and around 1910, uh, which changed that, and it reduced it from 27 sections all the way down to like nine. Now, Oregon has the requirement, and that was put to the voters to approve. However, In the voter pamphlet that they have to publish and put out to the voters, they have to put the entire text of what they're changing into that proposed amendment. And all they put, we went, we sent some people down to the Secretary of State and to the archives. They both keep the record for the voter. It's called the voter abstract. And what that is, is it's a single sheet or maybe two pages, of all the things the voters voted on, but particularly constitutional amendments. And it has to show what was published to the voters in the voter pamphlet so they were fully informed on what they were voting on. In Oregon's case, on the amended seven article on the judicial power, they changed, like I said, it went from 27 sections down to 9. And you know, we found later on, um, I'm getting ahead of myself here, they couldn't produce the voter abstract for that year. Secretary, they have a big bound book down there with each year of the voter abstracts. It's a big hard bound volume. And our people that went down there to check it said that the page that would have had that year's voter abstract was yellowed around the edges, meaning somebody removed it. 
So they went over to the archives to check their big hardbound volume of the voter abstracts. Same story. The edges of the page in the book were yellowed. Somebody removed that voter abstract. And the reason it was removed, probably, we're speculating, but probably somebody in the Attorney General's office removed those from the official records uh, because it was proof of fraud on the voters. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> when we... Um, when I called the Secretary of State shortly thereafter uh, to explain why those pages, that page was missing, they said, well, we had a fire here in uh, 1911, I think it was, and it destroyed some of our records. And I said, in the middle of a hardbound volume, that was a pretty controlled burn. <laughs> but nevertheless... We did manage, we, we had people go out and search all of the uh, different county courthouses, and we found that this is not considered an official record. That's the thing. Uh, they found a copy of that voter abstract in the basement, I think, of Crook County. And um, that's where we discovered that they totally misrepresented what was being changed on that amendment. They said it was they were just changing the number of jurors in, a, in certain civil cases and one other minor change. That was it. So they did a major hatchet job on the Article 7, and they totally misrepresented it to the voters. You probably have something similar in California. Remember, you got to get the evidence. Okay. If you're, gonna, if you're gonna do anything about it, you have to get the evidence. That means you have to go to the Secretary of State and demand to see the voter abstract on that amendment for that year and see how it was presented to the voters in the voter pamphlet. Okay. And if it's not exactly the way it was presented to the voters, um, then there's fraud, voter fraud. But, and you've got grounds to challenge it. Um, if it was exactly presented to the voters that way, then you're right. They're a bunch of damn fools. But I can use this case. This is outstanding, Monty. I pulled it up while we're while I was listening to you. Okay. The Hager case is outstanding. Yeah. yeah. So I can actually. So I could actually. I can use this Hager case. Yeah, in, and you have to use it with Article One, Section Ten of the Supreme Law. Okay. No, no state shall make. That means compel. If I make you sit down, I'm compelling you. So no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debt. And then the Hager case clarifies it, nails it right down to anything that they compel, whether it's taxes or. Um, um, assessments, which would include fines, that sort of thing. They can't compel you to pay anything under state law, except you know they'll say, "Well, we can accept credit cards and and checks and Federal Reserve, or, you know, cash and all that." Well, I know you can voluntarily accept it. I'm asking you, what can you compel me to do? And if you try to take my property, that's compelling. that answer your question, Tanya? 
You know, I could hug you, Monty. <laughs> <laughs> this is that was that's an excellent case because I'm uh I'm dueling with them now. I initiated a case uh attacking them on administrative procedures because I know that that's the way that's a way around um a, a lot of the other stuff is to attack the uh because um being a government worker myself not for the state but um I realized that um you can they always in 100% of the cases there is some i not dotted or t crossed because they take shortcuts Oh, yeah. Well, the thing is, you can also take the position as, um, well, I don't have any memory of waiving my Article 4 uh, rights under the Article 4 of the Bill of Rights or any of the rest of them. Do you have any evidence uh, to the contrary? If you do, I'd like to see it. Now what are they going to do? Now, you know what, Monty? Let me ask you this. Would it be a good idea, would it be a better idea to uh, do a writ um, with, um, with Article 1, Section 10 and Hager? Um, you could do a declaratory judgment or you could do okay. a writ of Colorento, but I'm, I'm saying that with tongue-in-cheek because you're going to get a lot of resistance on the uh, writ of Colorento. Okay, yeah. It's essentially by what authority are you doing or not doing what you're doing or not doing. And they can't produce the authority. They don't have the enabling authority. They have to get it from you. And they don't want to bring that up because the only way they can get it from you is through deception. Right. So so they're really at a disadvantage if you know how if you know how to, to pin them down on that. So hmm. Um, that's why I say it's like either show me in the Constitution where you you have the enabling authority or else produce uh, my personal authorization through contract law to allow you to do that. If you can't produce it, you have no authority. Oh, Monty, I can't wait to do my um, Public Records Act through the California Secretary of State on that um, voter abstract. Oh, those can be a lot of fun. <laughs> I know it. <laughs> oh, I'm looking. I'm rubbing my hands together. I wish we had had this uh, like yesterday, so I could have gotten the mail today. Yeah, well, I probably on receive the, it Monday. Yeah, on your full disclosure request, that's what I call them. Okay. I, I don't. I don't like citing FOIA, and I don't like citing. And they know what I'm. They know what I want. They know what I'm asking. So I've never had a problem with it. I just call it a full disclosure request. Okay. And, um, and, of course, you have to make the offer. I stand ready, willing, and able to recompense you for um, um, time and, or let's see, you know, time and effort expended in the performance of this request. That's all you got to put in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you can have so much fun with those things because, uh, at least I can, because whether it's an open court or in writing, I one of my signature styles of dealing with bar maggots is I like asking Spanish Inquisition type questions. You know how to do that? Um, somewhat. Okay. Well, an example of a Spanish Inquisition type question it would be: uh, Do you still beat, uh, or no? Do you, do you beat your wife with a stick? 
or do you still use your fist? No matter how they answer that, they're going to admit some kind of guilt. So uh, that's how you do your questions in your full disclosure questionnaire. <laughs> so if they lie on one, they're going to get caught in another one. <laughs> mm-hmm. I got that originally, that technique. I got that originally from George Gordon. I don't know if you know who he was. <clears throat> He founded the Barristers in, uh, in Barristers in School at Common Law in Boise, Idaho, with Bob Halstrom back in the seventies. And um, he, I learned a lot from him. And that's one of the things he used to do in court was with judges and attorneys was that they'd say something and he'd say, "Well, let me see if I understand you correctly. You're saying." And then he'd say it his way, and they'd say, well, no, that's not what we're saying. And he said, then he'd come back and say, well, then what are you saying? They'd say, well, <laughs> we're, we're saying this. And he'd say, oh, so in other words, you know, I need to understand what you're saying here. So in other words, you're saying, and he'd say it again, a slightly different way, his way. They'd say, no, that's not what we mean. Well, then what do you mean? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, well, the, thing is, the thing is, if you if, when you tell a lie, this this is old school stuff. You tell a lie, it takes ten more to cover it up, and it takes ten more to cover up each one of those. And all these people do is lie. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, we got somebody else waiting to ask. All right. So does that cover it, Tanya? Yep. Thank all you. Right. Hey, you bet. Okay, Oregon. I think it's Genevieve. You're next. Ah. Happy New Year. Hello. Not without a, not without a warranty. <laughs> warranty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we made it, huh? Yeah. Yeehaw. Well, you're so funny. I, you know, we're talking about uh, about the lawyer who, asked, or your friend anyway, who asks the questions, repeats the questions back in a different way. Um, we were looking at your, um, oh, I think it was volume two in we, your volume two, Monty. That, uh-huh. uh, and I was wondering, did you actually send? the special supplemental interrogatory to the attorney? Um, on one instance, at least once I've done that. <laughs> you you might want to explain a little bit about that to the other callers in case they don't know, because it's, it's wonderful. Um, actually, I don't have it immediately in front of me. If you do, go ahead. Oh, well... Well, it's just the idea of you're making, a, as far as I can tell, you make a statement that is true, and but it puts the uh, person in a bad light, and and there's no way that they can really deny it, and they can't say yes, they did it. So this is a whole list of questions, or actually statements to which they need to agree or disagree and and they can't do it so they're stuck so so your document with all of your statements 
becomes uh, the facts in the matter. Is that correct? Uh, if the judge doesn't interfere, yeah. Well, how can the judge interfere if you send it directly to the the other pers- the other party? Oh well, yeah. If you're doing it ahead of time, um, I I didn't. Now I sent it to an attorney, but I didn't get an answer to it. Right. I wouldn't expect you did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, how is that document titled? I'll see if I can find it. It's it's called Special Supplemental Interrogatory. Okay. Let me see that. if I can pull it up. It's it's just fantastic. We laughed and laughed, and I, I thought you were gonna. Br- I thought you were gonna bring up the chicken coop story. Oh well, that's another story that's well worth telling. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd done that when I was building my house. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, let's see, special. I don't know where I put that. Maybe it's the uh, page ninety of uh, volume two, the tacit procuration confession by proxy. It might, is that where it is? It might be. I'll get to it. Just a sec. It's it's fantastic. Well, you can find it. Have at it. Cause, okay. uh Yes, it is. That's that's what it is. So it's in volume two. Oh. And it's uh, page ninety-two. Is that the one where I asked for if they still wet the bed? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, tell us that one. <laughs> oh. Uh, then we're talking about two different things here. Oh, we are. Yeah. <laughs> now, no bedwetting in this one. <laughs> um. And this is having to do with um, Lanny Messinger? Oh, okay. Right. All right. That was in the um, appendices, wasn't it? No. No. No? I, I don't okay. believe it's an appendix. Uh-uh. No, it's in All right. Chapter 13, the tacit procuration, confession All right. by proxy. Okay, and well, it's... that's... Pardon me? That... Okay, go ahead. Well, um... Well, what I wanted to ask you about that, uh, and I wasn't intending to this evening, but um, is this the kind of thing that that you can send to the other party? If it's a bar maggot, by all means. Does it have to be a bar maggot, or can it be? Could it be just, uh, for example, uh, the tax assessor? Um. I wouldn't recommend it on that. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, bar maggots are, it's open season twenty uh, uh, every day of the year on them. Okay. And the reason that I asked specifically about the tax assessor is because I'm, I've mentioned this before. Um, two and a half years ago, I sent three letters of inquiry to the tax assessor uh, challenging um challenging him to show me how I was uh, uh, liable for property taxes. And I didn't get an answer back, and then I uh, filed uh, or sent him a 
an irrevocable estoppel by tacit procuration. And then, of course, he continued sending me property tax statements. And I was wondering, after looking at this particular document that you have here, I was wondering if I were to send him something similar to this, saying, is it true that I that I sent you blah, blah, and blah, blah, and etc. Oh, yeah, you can, you can do that. That's not a problem. Um, I'm, I'm referring to the uh, tongue-in-cheek thing um, that oh. I sent to the uh, bar maggot. Um, oh, okay. The, so that's a new, Oh, here we go. Where is that? Supple, supplemental interrogatories. Oh, no, oh here we go. Uh oh. Oh. Hey, go ahead. Okay. Hmm. This is what I sent to the attorney. Special supplemental interrogatories to Peter Pan Blowhard, attorney at law. I I I made this generic because I was keeping it for a template. You will please take notice that my intent, based on newly discovered but as yet incomplete information regarding the true nature of character of, and legal relations between, as well as the actual status and standing, or lack thereof, of the respective parties or alleged parties to the above-referenced case, is to help ensure that the above-entitled court does not inadvertently overreach its lawful jurisdiction or proceed in otherwise avoidable errors. As an officer of the court, at least in theory, you should know that how you comport yourself reflects directly on the dignity of the court. In the event you may have deceived the court regarding your actual competency to act in such capacity, you will please take further notice of the following. Um, actually, I think this was a uh, U.S. deputy attorney. It was, a, I think, an IRS case. Your reckless assertions of frivolous your apparent inability to distinguish between truth and falsehood, and your complete disregard for proven facts, many of which are public record, insults my intelligence, my education, and my sense of honor to such an extent that were we face-to-face, I would probably challenge you to a duel (laughs) with the the intention of cleaning up the gene pool of mankind. Wow. However, However, being a civilized man, I will make allowances for your manifest deficiencies of of character and mental challenges by establishing a baseline of modes of communication with you to achieve some degree of understanding between us in the hope that progress in the direction of truth might be marginally advanced to the benefit of those of us who must suffer your pitiful existence. To that object, I request that you answer the following special supplemental interrogatories as honestly as your disabilities allow and and return this document to me as soon as possible. The questions are, are you afflicted with or suffer autism? Are you afflicted with or suffer Down syndrome? Are you afflicted with or suffer, suffer ADHD? Is your foolish diarrhea of the mouth a congenital abnormality? (laughs) 
Is your preferred companion a teddy bear? Teddy bear? Do you still wet the bed? <laughs> what do you do with what is on your fingers when you pick your nose? <laughs> do you dress yourself or does someone else do it for you? Do you sleep? Now, there's a underlying second question here, and it should be pretty obvious on the rest of these. Do you sleep in a bed at night or in a casket during the day? <laughs> Do you routinely slough your epidermis? <laughs> Is your spine vertebral or cartilaginous? cartilaginous? <laughs> Have you ever chased an ambulance or fire engine? Have you ever bitten a mail carrier? <laughs> Did you arrive by natural birth or in a laboratory? Does being born with your head stuck up your ass severely impair blood flow to your brain? <laughs> what is your preferred drug for keeping you aware of your surroundings? <clears throat> Can you read and write or does someone else do that for you? Do you sign your own name or does someone else do it for you? Did you graduate from high school with a diploma or did you obtain a GED? Is the English language foreign to you? Is your vocabulary greater or lesser than 200 words? Does your vocabulary include the word vocabulary? Did anyone ever teach you how to use a dictionary? Do you know the meaning and etymology of the word attorney? Do you know the meaning and etymology of the word court? Was your admission to the bar on the basis of donative indulgence or an act of outright charity? Do you know the meaning of the word psychopath? Do you know the meaning of sociopath? When did you first decide to be a social parasite? When was the last time you recall having any meaningful contact with the real world? Does fleecing people of their property give you a sense of wholesome achievement? Does embezzling public funds under, penalty of, uh, under patently false pretenses excite you? Is your degenerate behavior an acquired skill or is it genetically inherited? My advice to you is best expressed in the words of a notable American author. Quote, you really should be more careful about venturing unsolicited opinions because you run the very grave risk of discovering their exact value to your listener, unquote. That was Anne Rand, by the way. Oh. Anyway. And did you send that? Yeah, I sent it to... Um, as I recall, I was a U.S. deputy attorney. Uh, did <laughs> Did you ever hear from him at all, ever again? Um, not that one, no. So you don't know whether he got a good laugh out of it or what his reaction was? Oh, I'm sure it made the rounds. Boy, the judge got a good laugh out of it, too. <laughs> you must have had a good time writing that one. Um. You know, George Gordon made a comment one time. 
he said, because he, he was instructing people on this, but he was into the litigation real heavy. I'm not into litigation. If you can avoid it, um, I think you should. But his comment was, if you, people, if you're not having fun with this, you're doing something wrong. Well, I must be doing something wrong. <laughs> I'm not having that much fun. Okay. Um, well, uh, I have one question that I'd like to ask, and that is, well, actually two. Um, okay, so we, we've spoken before about my having returned a property tax statement addressed to the all caps name, and and I clarified that I wanted them to reach me via my title case name. And then I'm still getting mail from other others, like phone company, electric company, in the all caps name. Right. Now, the if, way, um, now you have to keep your phone going. You've got to keep the power going and all that. Right. And the way, and the, way the guy, um, a friend of mine, he consulted with me on it, and I, what we worked out for him was he kept sending the letters back <laughs> because you're involving postal law now. You know, fraud under postal law. Yeah. You keep sending it back. You keep sending it back to him and saying, if you want to reach me, you don't open the letter. That's that's uh, your. um, It's a crime to open mail not addressed to you. And um, so you send it back. You don't unopened to them with a cover letter or a little note saying, if you want to reach me title case name. Here's how you do it. <laughs> then what he would do is he would go down to their office, you know, the power company office. That would be a Vista. Um, that was in Washington. And um, to the um, you know the telephone company down to their office to the front counter. And he, would, he wouldn't present the bill. He would just say, uh, uh, have him look up an account number and he'd say, I'm here to pay pay on it. And he'd hand them the cash over the counter. And they had no record that you acknowledged anything to do with that all-cap name. And it kept it kept his power on. It kept his, power, his phone running. Well, am I required, I mean, am I required to uh, not open up mail addressed to the all-caps name now that I have, uh, sent sent by other entities. Um, well, restate that question. Well, yeah, that was poorly formed. Um, am I required to notify everyone that I don't accept mail to the all caps name, or can I exercise discretion? Um, what do you think? You're the boss. Well, that's what I was thinking. I can, I can, <laughs> you know. Um, so I don't, you know, we spoke uh, recently about having somebody else open it up for me or, you know, doing what you told me about your friend doing. And I don't feel like doing any of that. And I don't know that anybody can uh, can fault me on that. But I'm, I don't, but I'm, it's not a matter of faulting you. It's just a matter of how well you want to protect yourself. Well, how can they how can they require me just because I've told one company or one entity that I don't want to that I don't open all caps name mail? Well, there's two things to look at there. One is what does the contract you signed with them to get the service say? That's one. 
back to what I was talking about on the bank. You sign a contract, unqualified signature on a contract with them, um, then yeah, you you know you're going to have to fix that or uh, accept the liability that goes with it. And uh, the other is um, the way that they can enforce that against your will if you want to fight it is they can just shut your power off or shut your phone off. Well, well, what I'm, well, I'm not being very clear at all. I don't think. I, what I'm suggesting is that just because I am not going to open all caps name mail from the tax assessor, that I can't open all caps name mail from the power company. Okay. Well, you can do that, but you. You're going to have to be on your toes if it ever becomes an issue, especially in a court, um, because you can do uh, whatever you want to, and they can too, the phone company, power company, voluntarily. They're not under the restriction of Article 1, Section 10. We're talking about what the state can, can compel you, and well, that applies directly to the taxes. But as far as other services... Uh, it just weakens your position um, on that unless you take the position and you say, well, I can do whatever I want to voluntarily. So I'll voluntarily. But again, it, it weakens your position because that's not you and you're not authorized to make uh, representations on behalf of or payments on behalf of that fiction. Okay. Now, uh, but now, if I, if I, uh, the woman have power of attorney for the all caps name. Who's gonna? That's a self-serving document. How are you gonna enforce that? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just wondering. You can't be the maker and, re, and recipient of a power of attorney at the same time. That's a nullity. And the courts call that a self-serving document. But isn't wouldn't that just be a clarification of the of the difference between uh, me, the live woman, and um, the all caps name that entity? Um, well, if you want to put a notice in that you accept no liability by or through that fiction, as I stated earlier. I think more than once. Um, you could do that. That would cover you legally. In other words, you can still transact business by and through that fictitious name, but you're not going to accept any liability for it. And this kind of goes along with that, and that is uh, you have talked about, I believe, doing a DBA. Yeah, you and, can do that too. And and then that would be sort of the same thing, wouldn't it? Um, well, now, <clears throat> some states, since I started um, having other people use that, some states have actually changed their laws on that so that now uh, you'll find that there's a statute, at least I think there is in Idaho, I think there's one in California. Uh, there's a statute that says you cannot 
do a DBA in your own name. Oh. I mean, they learn as much from me as I learn from them. So. <laughs> oh, you gave the game away. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> oh, darn. <laughs> huh. Okay. I did do that. <laughs> yeah, well, you've been working at this for a while. Huh. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's called continuing education in law. Yeah, never-ending. <laughs> well, these bar maggots aren't very bright. You know, former Chief Justice uh, Berger had a, they had a, um, like a big banquet dinner party for him, and it was attended by two or three hundred uh, members of the bar. Some of them were judges, some of them were just high-powered attorneys. And when he gave his little speech at the end of the dinner, he looked out over the audience and he told them, he said, 95% of you are incompetent. Wow. What was I, thought he, I, thought he, I thought he was being rather generous myself. But. <laughs> Maybe he was. <laughs> <laughs> What was the reaction? Dead silence? Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody was going to challenge him on it. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe they didn't really understand it, <laughs> what he said. I'm sure there were a few of those, too. <laughs> what did he say? <laughs> huh? <laughs> well. All right. So, oh. does that answer your questions? Yes. Okay. But I, well, not all of them, Tad. All right. Well, you know uh, that. <laughs> I just want to let me put the word out because we had somebody else that was waiting and they're gone. Yeah, I but noticed any, that. I'm sorry. If anybody has any questions, hit star eight on your phone and we'll get to you. While we're waiting. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so star eight on your phone, just chirp, chirp, and uh, we'll call on you to uh, answer any questions that you might have. So this goes along with a question uh, regarding signature and autograph uh, qualifiers. Regarding qualifiers in general, should they be put above the signature or below it? You want it above the signature. You want it conspicuous. Okay. Oh, yeah. And that was another question I think I had about you when you said, oh, conspicuous, yeah. You said... Um, you if it's said in Latin. Latin is conspicuous, you said. Yes, it is. And then you also said, uh, if you can, bold it. Now, if you, you're able to do that, but uh, if you're signing one of their forms, that's generally not workable, so you just write it in. Okay, <laughs> so, okay when, so when you say bold it, you actually mean like, uh, a heavy typeface, not all caps. Right, and I'll even go one step further and italicize it. Oh, okay. All right, well, our person is back that has their question, so I'm going to go ahead and Great. Uh, move the call over to them. Thank all you right. very much, Genevieve. Thanks, Tad. You bet. Thanks, Monty. <laughs> you bet. Thank you. All right, so Hawaii, you're next. Uh, your wow. phone just muted and unmuted. <clears throat> go ahead. Hey, Tad, Monty, I appreciate the call, uh, the chance to call. So um, 
sure. Let's see. I, I wanted to ask um, something more along. I'm having a civil dispute. Uh, it's kind of a, um, oh, it's turned out to be kind of an ugly divorce where the kids are kind of pitted in the middle. And um, uh, I tried to um, be real cordial and nice to the other party in hopes that they would have some uh some grace and some, um, you know, just the idea that the, the children should be, you know, have some influence with their parents and stuff. And so, uh, anyway, I'm just wondering, like, uh, my um, my attorney says that, you know, that the um, that 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 it's always openable in terms of uh, a divorce. And uh, the custody issue, um, but I'm just wondering if I might be just as well served to use some of the techniques you guys were discussing earlier, like uh, sending um, sending uh, the defendant or you know the the ex-wife um, like affidavit style, um, stating the facts and then hoping that. Um, she or the attorney would not respond and then uh, submit that as evidence in um, in my case because uh, there was some improprieties. Well, she, she'd explained to me that she knew the judge. Now, I don't know how improper that is in a case where a divorce proceeding is going, but it certainly didn't fare uh, well for me. So, um, okay, but I, you know that's not that's one of those things where you know it, but can you prove it? And that's it. I can't. So other than it's hearsay, but that's why I was thinking that if I send the uh, certified letter or you know uh, uh, you know that type of thing, where um, um, if they don't dispute it, and you know it is the truth, so by 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 responding to it. Uh, and and acknowledging it in a way that you know by di- by dismissing it and saying no or lying about it you know then they put themselves a little bit on the um, y- you know the chance that I could prove it right they don't know that I don't have proof so maybe they would just ignore it and then what are my chances of having that you know administered and and uh, as evidence and um, and make well, it, you know. Yeah, if they ignore it and it's to your disadvantage, then you can ask for a declaratory judgment or you can pose them as interrogatories if you check the rules of your court. Um, There will be rules in there on interrogatories, and you can ask, I think in most states it's around 40 interrogatory questions and demand production of documents along with that, and and the court will enforce that. I have a and question. So about, are, go now, ahead, please. Are these um, offspring uh, weaned? Yeah, fortunately, uh huh. They witnessed, um, you know, the 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 interaction between so us two, and and they understand that, you know, that. Okay, but the point is, the point is that they're no longer physically dependent on the mother. That's true. Okay. That's all that really counts. So as far as, uh, because almost always when it's infants involved, the custody is going to go with the mother because they're still physically dependent on the mother. 
in theory. Yeah, no, I get it. And and the kids aren't being mistreated. It's just um, I'm just um, other than the fact that she's you know kind of turning their hearts bitter against uh, against me, their father, and um, and it's um, what do you say? It's just um, are there I other pro- yeah? Are there is this ahead. the only issue, or are there other property issues involved? Well, there were in the sense that, you know, she certainly got the lion's share of the property, but I wasn't in dispute of that. You know, I, I'm able to manage outside of, of needing that. But um, And there was some splitting of the properties, but nonetheless, uh, you know, she needs the household for the children, and she's their mother. They're going to reside with her, but but they also need to have some understanding from it doesn't need to all be one-sided, especially when she's jaded. So um, uh, I've seen the children uh, probably 12 hours in the last 12, 13, 14 months. So it's just been, you know, uh, I've had more visitation with a couple of them, but less with uh, maybe one in particular that, and he's the one that seems, well, Go ahead. probably not knowing more about the case, I'd say your best bet then would be to do the uh, go the interrogatory route. You'll have less resistance on that from the court. And what do you and, mean by that less resistance? I just uh, try to understand. Well, a lot of these remedies that we talk about on this program, um, bar maggots do not like them. They okay. really don't like them. But interrogatories are something they understand. They're willing to enforce because it's in their rules. Uh, And you can pretty much achieve the same result with interrogatories. But remember this. Interrogatories are asking... All you're doing with interrogatories is you're asking for facts. You can't make an argument without facts. So you're asking for facts under oath. And... um, And then you have something to argue about, maybe. Uh, and that's why they—that's why they're—they—they uh, they don't resist interrogatories because they don't want a lot of argument if they can avoid it. The attorneys like it because they make more money, but judges don't like it because they got heavy dockets as it is. Um, but are these actions that I can take on myself to interrogatories? I mean, uh, I mean, if I'm you could, or you—you you can, or you can. Uh, have your Sorry. attorney do it, but attorneys okay. generally don't know how to write them really well. But if you're kind of like a greenhorn at this, if you're kind of a babe in the woods, so to speak, um, you might want to let the attorney do it or work closely with him on it and tell him exactly. Yeah, that what might you... be good. Okay, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. I've I've been working with this attorney a bit, um, and then and then so the idea is now you're saying I'm trying to uncover the facts, um, right? So like, but I was thinking, like, make statements. Like, for instance, um, you know, one of the facts is that she kind of frauded me out of some money. She went into some of my accounts, and and while I was uh, being, uh, you know, forced evacuation from the home, uh, she took money out of my accounts. And then, you know, I don't have a real good traceable way of, um, of proving that, but I'm thinking if I can at least state it in a, well, an app. Yeah, the bank is going to have records of that. 
as far as well, pay. it wasn't through a bank. It was through a, it was through an, you know like an offshore broker. So it's not as easy. Oh. I couldn't get a witness necessarily. So um, so I was just thinking if I have any. And then she went on to try and open accounts in my name, same sort of thing. So if I was if I were to you know the only evidence or the most likely evidence I would have would be like these interrogatory or is that the same as an affidavit or no different? Uh, they have to be answered under oath. And oh oh so okay oh so I I was thinking I could go under the same guys that if they didn't respond to it. But chance no 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 if they if they don't respond it's it's the same as a as a negative answer. So what you need to do is check the the, the uh, rules of the state court in Hawaii okay. under, inter, under interrogatories, and it'll tell you, um, and you might have to cross-reference two or three different uh, rules, but it'll tell you all about interrogatories, what you can do and what you can't do with them, what their purpose is, um, and then if nothing else, work with your attorney on it and say, here's here's what I want to achieve. Um, and then they'll have, in most cases, they're going to have uh, I, either 20 or 30 days to respond. And they have to answer every single question with particularity. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it shows... Otherwise, it shows bad faith. It, it involves the clean hands doctrine, on and on and on. So, yeah, probably interrogatory is best, be the best way for you to go. Okay. And so, you know, I could make those kind of facts, even though I can't, or those statements, even though I can't prove it, like um, uh, said party um, made announcement to me uh, that um, that she knew the judge personally, which, you know, there, there was by association she worked for another attorney. No, that's not, how you put, that's not how you do it. Okay. What you do is you ask the question, do you or do you not have a, uh, a personal um, relationship with the judge or something along those lines? But that's and okay, she, just to add, make them answer a yes or no type of question? Or, or that like kind of a question, you, yes. Okay. That kind of a question, yes. That's how you do it. I see. And then, then that would be part of the facts as we're talking about. Well, okay. See, when her, and I'm, I'm assuming she has an attorney, when they get the interrogatories, they, even though you can't prove some of this stuff, they have to assume that somehow you can. They have to assume that. Okay. And they're not going to get, they have to answer under penalty of perjury, so they're not going to get caught in that trap. That's what I'm hoping. That's what I'm hoping for, is that the, the right. fact that they're true, they, they can't deny it. Right. So it's like, do you or do you not? Or did you or did you not? That's how you frame your questions. Okay. And you, okay. And you have to do it with particularity. In other words, on or about such and such date, did you do this or did you not do this, da, da, da. And I think you're allowed up to 40. Uh, you have to check your rules there in Hawaii, but I think it's probably around 40 interrogatories. Well, that should be plenty. That would be enough to get them in a corner anyway. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. No, I really appreciate that. Um, let's see. Uh, what was the other question? Are you guys still doing any of the mentoring, or do you ha- have any openings to that, or is that uh, you were offering quite a? Uh, quite a... Yeah, let's take that up with Tad, because uh, okay, okay. 
All right, yeah, and I've worked a little bit on this case with Tad. It, it kind of went round and round, but um, now it's a year, 13, 14 months later, and, and the person still has the same general attitude, which is, you know, um, you, you, know, you want to see the kids, you're going to have to fight me. And I'm just like, well, okay, you know, if you really want to fight, but she's she's the one that's frauded me. And, and, um, and well, it, the way, yeah, the way you want to phrase that or the way you want to present it, to the court is the court wants to know how you are being prejudiced. Okay? So okay. You're, you have certain rights as a parent and uh, you're being prejudiced in the exercise of those rights. Okay. Okay. That's the basis that for sense. your that's the basis for your claim is you're being prejudiced. Now you have to show the court how you're being prejudiced and in order to do that You've got to get some facts, and that justifies the interrogatories. Wait a minute. Okay. Wait, I'm not being prejudiced. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, and it's... Uh... I'm not. I'm serious. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Is this... Ta- okay. Sorry. If you want to speak, you do have to wait your turn. You have to hit star eight, <laughs> and I will what call on you. That wasn't me. Okay. I know so, it wasn't. Uh, no, it was somebody else. So if, okay. if that person that was no. talking wants to speak, hit star eight and we'll call you. So go ahead. Okay. All right. So, no, very generous. Um, I uh, I feel like at least, you know, I, I heard it said somewhere else um, there was somebody who'd want, uh, they didn't quite um, get what the, 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 the justice wasn't quite served, in, at least in the term of the sentence, although there was some justice served, you know, as somebody who'd been, uh, you know, like really taken advantage of, but they said, they said, you know, the thing that was good was just exposing the stuff to the light and it becomes therapeutic as much as anything, because otherwise you just sit and sulk and that's the thing that, uh, you know, will drive a person crazy. So, um, yeah, you can sit there and fondle yourself too, to make yourself feel better, but, um, <clears throat> yeah. You have to remember. <laughs> you have to put your when you're when you're doing this kind of thing with the courts. You have to remember that the judge and the attorneys, uh, despite their other disadvantages of the profession, um, they're they're just human beings too, and they they have certain pressures on them. They have certain limitations. Um, so don't expect more than than what's realistic, all right? I wouldn't want to be a judge. I wouldn't want to handle the caseload. But no, I, I explain that to my attorney all the time. I would not want his job, you know. Uh, so, uh, but at the same time, I don't know if I can afford to pay him all the time. So I could do some of the legwork myself and, like you say, have him help me out or um, sure. I'll check. That would be a great way that. to do it. That would be a okay. great way to do it because okay. you'd get an education in the process. Mm. <laughs> uh, well, very generous. At least I have something to work on, and then um, if I can think of something else, I'll give you guys a shout back uh, at the next show. But thanks so much for uh, you know um, shedding some of your years of experience to to us uh, out here, Monty. You bet. All righty. Uh, oh, okay. Our person from Southeast Texas just. Uh, raise his hand and let's see what he has to say. Hello. Just uh, raise his hand and let's see what he has to say. Okay, we got a 
Okay, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Hey, 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 how are you? I, I'm, I'm sorry that I spoke out of turn, and and I hope that you would forgive us. And, uh, no uh, problem. Go ahead. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> well, I just, I came into the show and heard something about prejudice, and I'm not being prejudiced. Okay. No, 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 no. I was, I was telling this guy that he has to show the court how he's being prejudiced. Yes, to show the show the court. What do you mean, this guy? Is he? Uh, he was are, he was wanting to know how is this to guy that's just thinking about black. Is he black? Is he a nigger? Nigger, nigger. Um, I have no idea. The conversation's going kind of crazy, sir. Were you listening to the call or what's going on? No, 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 like no, you're off base a little bit. No, well, let me let me just. Explain myself for a moment. My name is is late night president Todd Morse, by the way, and I heard you know I was looking on the Talk Shoe app, which has a lot of controversy surrounding it right now, and I saw your show, which was Tad, and it sounds a lot like Todd, and I kind of took offense. You know, I've I've worked very very hard for my name, President Todd Morse, and I think Tad is kind of just ripping off of of. President Todd, just a tad bit, don't you think, Tad? I think we're going to go ahead and end this call, Monty. All right. This guy's kind of a nutcase. Okay, so, all right, well, you guys, thank you very much uh, for uh, joining us tonight. And uh, we will see you next time. Monty, thank you very much. You bet. All right, good night, everybody. Good night.